when Don was um, baptizing E.J., I was reminded of something that uh, Joyce Westland told me this past week. She came through the auditorium, and there were two third graders sitting on the rim of the baptistry. And we were in the process of uh, cleaning it. We have to fight algae constantly because of the warm water. And uh, one of the third graders looked uh, into the baptistry and, and saw the algae in the bottom and said, Yuck! He said, What is that? And uh, the other looked at the algae and says, Looks like sin to me. <laughs> Isn't that great? (laughs) We've been washed by the water of regeneration. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, if you will, please. And I'd like to begin reading with verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. My father used to tell a story about a little boy and his father that were wandering through a church building one day, and the pastor happened to see them, and he was showing them various parts of the building. And as they passed the back wall of the auditorium, they came to a series of plaques that contained the names of men and women that had served in the armed forces. And some of them were starred, and the little boy asked the pastor, what do the stars mean? And the pastor said, well, those are the men and women that died in the service. At which point the little boy said, which which service, sir, the morning service or the evening service? (laughs) And uh, having perished in a few pews myself, I understand exactly what he's talking about. Isaac Walton, in, in, in the very last page of The Complete Angler, says, To beget mortification, frequent churches. I think he had something else in mind. He was talking about the suppression of the uh, flesh, but uh, I sometimes put another twist to that word mortification, which means to put to death. I've been killed in a few churches, and I suspect you you have as well. Their meetings have done you more harm than good. You go expecting to be nurtured and cared for and loved and comforted and instructed, and your faith enlarged, and you go away diminished. That's the charge that Paul levels to this uh, church in Corinth. Your meetings, he says, do more harm than uh, than good. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to what I think was uh, happening. This is not an easy passage to understand, and I'm not sure that I fully understand it, but I think I, I, glimpse, uh, I have a glimpse of some bits and pieces of it. The early church was much more informal than social, and social than we, were, than we are. I, I wish there was some way for us to recapture that uh, informality. I think we've done it to some extent in the growth groups, but we have a long way to go. 
In the first place, they met in homes. There were no church buildings until the third century uh, A.D. They met uh, in uh, the homes of the wealthy primarily because th- those were the only har- homes that were large enough to accommodate these uh, gatherings. We know, for example, from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that the church at Ephesus met in the home of Gaius, who was a wealthy Roman official there. Paul says that he was host to me and to the church. So they gathered in a home-like atmosphere in a, as a family in meetings that were very open, transparent. There was no clergy. Even our Lord was a layman, as you know. There were no professional Christians. They just gathered to read the words of the apostles and to pray together, to care for one another, to uphold one another in various ways, and to break bread, as we're told in the, in the book of Acts. What, what that term means is, is something more than our communion. It was really a feast. It was called the agape, uh, the Greek word for love, a love feast. The rich brought uh, as much food as they can. Those that had nothing to bring brought nothing. Those that had little contributed little. It was much like our church potlucks. Everyone brought what they could. There was a common meal. They shared these resources together. They, they ate and drank and, and lingered long over these meals. And then at the, at the end of the meal, they would reenact what happened in the upper room, the first Last Supper. In a way, they, they repeated the Last Supper over and over again as a way of remembering what had happened on that particular uh, occasion. They, they didn't use the elements that we use, the little plastic cups and the uh, synthetic wafers. I always think of them as fish food, you know. They, it's the best that we can do given our setting. I wish we could go back to using a loaf and a common cup. It's just not practical for us anymore. But they, they gathered around the table. They used the uh, food that was there on the table, the bread and the wine. And at some point in, in the meeting, our, our Lord stood, as you know, and broke the bread, and that's what they would do, and they would remember the Lord's uh, giving of his own body, and, and at the end, they would, they would share a cup of wine, and they would remember that outpouring of, of his life uh, for us. It was all one piece. The love feast was incorporated right into this uh, Lord's Supper. That's the term that's used throughout the New Testament, the Lord's Supper. Uh, it is as though we are seated at the feet of the Lord. He is our host. We are his invited guests. And we react, reenact again what happened in that, uh, in that gathering in the, in the upper room. The word that's used for supper is a word that's most akin to our word dinner. In those days, breakfast was uh, eaten on the run. They usually just took some bread and dipped it in wine, and, and that, that was breakfast. And then lunch was uh, either a bagged lunch, like, like the little boy's lunch that he gave to Jesus when Jesus fed the 5,000, or they, ate, uh, they bought something in the marketplace. They ate in the city square or with their friends. But the evening meal was something else. 
Uh, they didn't have television. They didn't have, you know, books were very scarce, if obtainable at all. Lighting wasn't that good, even if they did have books. And so they gathered as a family, and, and they, they lingered long over the meal. They, it was quite a large meal. And uh, they would spend the whole evening just talking and catching up, as we would say, hanging out, just loving each other and being briefed on what happened through the day, talking over their problems. And, and that was reenacted in, this, uh, in the Lord's uh, Last Supper in the upper room, and that's what, the, that's what the early church did. It's just a wonderful picture of their commonality and their fellowship around the Lord, just sitting at his feet, listening to him, learning from him, sharing what, uh, we, what he had provided. But what was happening in Corinth was a caricature of, of the real thing. I'm not exactly sure what was happening, but Paul describes it like this. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You can call that gathering anything you wish, I suppose, but you can't call it the Lord's Supper because it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with the Lord's, uh, Lord's presence because they had lost the art of sharing. Here's what I think was happening. The rich uh, came with, with a great deal of food, and, and they went off into one part of the courtyard, and they gathered their kind, and they began to, to eat the food that they had brought. And slaves, perhaps, who couldn't get off work in time, they, they were the latecomers. They didn't get anything. There wasn't anything left when they, when they came. And there were the people that lived on the other side of the tracks that were ostracized, that they weren't our group, so they, they were sent off to another part of the house. And the people were actually getting, getting drunk. They were self-indulgent to that extent, and they had lost that art of loving and caring and giving and, and providing uh, for others. And so what Paul does is to remind them of, of what happened on that, that auspicious occasion when the Lord gathered with his disciples. That's what follows in verses 23. It's a simple reminder. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's very striking what Paul says about uh, this, uh, this event. He tells the people at Cor- in Corinth that the Lord himself had taught him what occurred in that clandestine meeting when our Lord gathered with the apostles. Paul did not receive this information from the apostles. As a matter of fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul makes it very clear that he didn't receive anything from the other apostles. He wasn't a second-generation Christian. He was a first-generation apostle with all the authority and all the rights and privileges of an apostle. And apparently in the the years that Paul was out in the wilderness being instructed by the Lord, the Lord himself told Paul, of the events that occurred in this upper room, events that only the apostles could have been aware of. And as a matter of fact, this is the first reference historically to this event. The Gospels were written much later. 
So this word from the Lord came through Paul, a tradition that he received from Christ himself, and he passed it on to the disciples. Uh, he passed it on to the people in Corinth, and he said, Now, I, I want you to remember what actually happened in that upper room and see if what you're doing corresponds. Now, you have to remember what actually occurred. We're told that our Lord, on that occasion, knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing that he was going back to the Father, knowing that all authority had been given to him, rose from his uh, place at the meal, and he took off his long outer tunic and and the little uh, short tunic that they wore underneath, and dressed only in a loincloth, he got down on his hands and knees, and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. You would expect John to say that our Lord, knowing his authority rose from his place and began to deliver the upper room discourse, but that, that's not what he did. He, he just took the place of a common slave. See, it was the duty of a slave to wash the feet of the guests at a meal, but there were no slaves in the apostolic community, and none of the other disciples were willing to play the, the part of a slave, and so the Lord of glory got down on his knees and he washed their feet. And in that event, he symbolized for them the need to, to be cleansed from the defilement of, of sin. As we walk through the world, our feet accumulate dirt, and as we go through the world, our hearts accumulate defilement, and there's a constant need of cleansing. And our Lord, on this occasion, in symbol, indicated that, he, that it was his heart's desire to help them deal with, it, with, their, with their defilement. And then we're told that he started the meal by dipping a piece of bread in the wine. That's what was called a sop. That's what some of the translations call it, the sop. And he handed it to Judas. The way a meal was normally begun was with, with, that, with that act, and it was passed to the person on the left, and apparently Luke was there. And I see this as simply another effort on the part of our Lord to reach out to Judas. He knew that he was the betrayer. And yet he loved this man, and he kept reaching out to him, trying to, trying to draw him in. And then at some point in the meal, he took the loaf of bread that was in the center of the table. It was just common bread. There was nothing hallowed about it, nothing special about it. It was just an ordinary loaf of bread. And he picked it up, and he, and he broke it, and he began to hand the pieces out not to signify his broken body, as some of our translations put it, but really to indicate that everyone could participate. His body was not broken, as you know. Not a bone was broken. But he broke the pieces off to let the disciples know that it is, it is as easy to enter into what Christ has done for, it, for us as it is to ingest a piece of bread. They took it, and they ate it, and it became a part of, of their life. This, he says, is my body, not in any literal sense, but it represents my body. You have to remember that the Lord was still in his incarnate state. His body was present in that room. He could not mean this is my body when he was present in body. He was saying this represents my body, which is to be offered for you. And then at the close of the meal, because this was the custom in the Passover, the third cup of wine was called the cup of thanksgiving, and it was an opportunity to express thanks to God for all that he had done, specifically in, in the Passover feast for the Exodus itself. But uh, in the upper room, our Lord gave it 
an entirely new meaning. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. What did he mean? Well, what he was saying is, my blood, the pouring out of my life, is the means by which God is renewing his covenant with his people to be their God, and they would be his, his people. In the Old Testament, contracts uh, in, in that time, contracts were always sealed by the sacrifice of an animal, the giving up of a life. Our Lord became the Lamb of God that ratified the arrangement that God was, was making with us. There are two words, uh, I should tell you, that word new covenant actually comes from the Old Testament and the prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah that God was going to establish a new covenant with his people. And uh, there are two words for new in the Hebrew language. One means brand new, the other means renewed. This is that latter word, renewed. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant when God told Abraham that he would bless him, he would enrich his life, he would make of him a great nation, and through him he would bless the whole world. Salvation would come through this man and would be applied to the, to the entire world. And what Jeremiah predicted is that despite Israel's disobedience, despite the hardness of, of their heart, that, that deal, that contract, that arrangement was still on. And when our Lord came, it was renewed as a result of the, of the pouring out of, of his life. Now, those were the events that took place in, the, uh, <clears throat> in that room. And uh, it's well that, that we remember what they signify. As Jesus said to the, to the disciples on that occasion, when you do this, you, you remember the Lord's death till he comes. Someone has has written these words, I, I, I really don't know the source. It is well that we should think of the upper room and of the last supper and of his soul exceeding sorrowful unto death. And then of Gethsemane, the deep shadow of the olive trees, his loneliness, prayers, and disappointment with his disciples, his bloody sweat, the traitor's kiss, the binding, the blows to the face, the spitting, the buffeting, the mocking, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the smiting, the sorrowful way, the burdensome cross, the exhaustion and collapse, the stripping, the impaling, the jeers of his foes, the flight of his friends, the hours on the cross, the darkness, his being forsaken of God, his thirst, and the end, his lonely, unvisited death. That's what that upper room signifies. That's why we celebrate that last supper. That's why the early church gathered in their communal meals and ended each meal with that, uh, with that symbolism. It was a way of remembering all that, that Christ had done for them. And they actually saw themselves, I believe, seated in that upper room with the disciples, remembering that they were sinful just as the disciples were, just this gathering of of, of men whose, whose hearts were, were wretched, sinful, and who desperately needed forgiveness. You have to remember that one of the charges that was constantly leveled at Jesus is that he ate and drank with sinners. And that puts a brand new significance on that upper room. Here, here were 11 men, none of whom could say that, that, that their hearts were pure. They were all struggling with, with, with sin and 
And yet the Lord was willing to eat and drink with them because of the sacrifice that he was prepared to make for them. He receives sinners, as the gospel puts it, and he eats with them. I have a dear friend, Edith Richards, who uh, tells uh, of her own conversion this way. She was sitting in a small church in Texas, and the pastor of that church was reading the story in the Gospels where that uh, charge was leveled against, against the Lord. And he was reading it in the King James Version. Uh, he receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And uh, when Edith heard those words, she thought he was saying, Edith. He receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And she thought, that's, that's me. And I would encourage you this morning to, to see yourself seated at the Lord's feet, joining in with those disciples at that table, hearing of our Lord's wonderful, gracious heart, his, his desire to be our friends, our friend, his desire to, to love us unconditionally, his, his intent to forgive us and to purify us and to make us all that, that he wants us to be. And to know that he receives those of us that know we're sinners and he eats with us. I read a few weeks ago of the story of John Duncan, the uh, Scottish uh, theologian who was serving the Lord's table in a Scottish Presbyterian church. This was back in the 17th century. And as he was making his way down the uh, center aisle, passing out the elements in those days, they were, uh, the elements were given individually to people in the congregation. And he approached a young woman, 16 years of age, who was sitting on the aisle, and he knew of her life and the defilement of it. And when he offered her the cup, she turned her face away. And he said, take it, lassie. It's for sinners. And that's what our Lord says to us in this meal. This is for sinners. doesn't make any difference what you've done this past week. doesn't make any difference what, who you've wronged. That can be set right because of the blood of of Christ. Now, uh, Paul uh, issues a stern warning in this passage, and I think this this passage is rarely quoted when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When it is quoted, I think it can have a devastating effect on people if they don't understand what Paul is is saying. Let me read on, beginning with verse twenty-seven. Therefore. Because of the solemnity, the sublimity of this event, because of the tender emotions that ought to be evoked as we remember the night on which our Lord was betrayed, because of the implications of that occasion for us as as sinners, because of our wonderful acceptance, because of all that, that Christ has done. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body or discerning the body, as some of the translations put it, without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment. 
when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. I think that passage troubles people a great deal. Let me read something that F.B. Meyer uh, wrote. This is, I think, one of the explanations for what uh, Paul is saying. How many humble and earnest souls this verse has rendered in the, in the authorized version has kept from the blessed enjoyment of the Lord's table? They did not understand the nature of the sin which the apostle was describing. They were terrified by the word damnation, and they felt that it were better to, to forego this privilege than risk the peril. And then he explains, The eating and drinking unworthily arose from not discerning the body. This does not refer to the Lord's body, which was broken for us, but to his body, the church. The bread which we break, and here he quotes 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The bread which we break is not a communion, is it? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ, seeing that we who are many are one bread, one body? We eat and drink unworthily when we fail to discern that the poor and the weak and the simple who belong to Jesus belong also to us, that they are members with us, and that we are bound to share our gifts and graces with them for the glory of our common Lord. The one thing which disqualifies us from joining in this feast of dying love is our refusal to manifest love to those in the body. Do you understand what he's saying? If we can gather this morning around this table, if we can sit at our Lord's feet, if we can picture ourselves in that upper room, if we can experience the wonderful forgiveness of the cross, I cannot look across this combination and uh, this, this congregation and look into the Lord's face and say, I do not like that brother over there. I cannot stand that sister over there. I cannot forgive that person over there because of what they have done to me. Or separate myself from someone because they're not exactly like me. I cannot do that. And when we do not discern the body, as Paul puts it, it's that we're not loving the body out of the relationship that we and they have to Jesus Christ. We are all sinners before him. We have all been saved by his wonderful grace. We are all recipients of his unconditional love, and therefore I cannot fail to love those he has loved. Not to love someone that our Lord loves is serious sin. That's why Paul says some among you are sick and some of you have even died. Sickness is often the Lord's chastening hand on us. Sickness lays us aside for a time so that we have a period of peace and quiet, so we can contemplate our own hearts. Sickness is not always the result of sin. Sometimes there, it may simply be an occasion to glorify God in some unusual way. Remember what Jill told us last week about the young woman in the bed next to her in the hospital who used that occasion to lead her to, to Christ. Sickness can be a wonderful opportunity to display the glory of, of God, manifest his beauty and his character. But sickness can also be the result of sin. And uh, when we fall ill, it's a good time for us to examine our hearts. Is there someone I'm unwilling to forgive? And as a matter of fact, Paul says it is so serious, some have even died. Their illness is, is terminal. 
They've, they've died as a result of their sin. This is not separation from God. But what, what Scripture would refer to as a sin unto death, God simply takes us home to be with him. So it's very important, Paul says, it's very important that we take a good, hard look at ourselves before we gather at our Lord's feet around this table. Remember what our Lord said about coming to a place of worship? We, if we have a gift that we're bringing to the Lord and we bring it to the, uh, in order to worship him and we remember that we have something against our brother or sister or they have something against us, what did Jesus say? Leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come back and offer your gift. It's the same principle. I'm told that, that when Leonardo da Vinci was, was painting the Last Supper, he was working on the face of Jesus, and it, it was a very painstaking task. And as he worked, uh, something his helper did annoyed him, and he lashed out at uh, this man in anger, and the man went away humiliated. And, and da Vinci turned again to begin to work on the face of Jesus, and he was so troubled, he, he, couldn't, he just couldn't get it right. He knew what was wrong, and he went to this man, and he apologized, asked for his forgiveness, and he was able to go back and look into the face of Jesus. You understand what Paul is saying? We cannot gather in this body this morning and gather around our Lord and celebrate this, uh, this supper. If we have hatred in our heart toward someone that belongs to our Lord, if we're unwilling to forgive, if we're unwilling to judge our own sin. Now, Paul is not talking about sin that we're willing to judge and deal with. He's talking about another kind of sin, what George MacDonald describes as the sin one dwells in, that which pervades his thoughts and rules his conduct, his present life sins, the sins he keeps doing and will not give up. It, it, it's resistance against the will of God. It's not the sins of the past that we've been willing to face and confess and judge and put away. It's the live sins. It's, it's the sins that we presently live in. And so before we gather around this table, I would like to ask you to bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord. Isaiah said, this is the person that I highly esteem. The one who comes with a humble and a contrite heart. He never despises our contrition. And I want us to examine ourselves before we, we can move toward this table. We need to first move toward the Lord and, and open our hearts up to him. And ask him if there is something that we need to set right. It may be with the person who's sitting right next to you. You may need to do nothing more than, than reach over and squeeze that person's hand or arm and let them know that you forgive them. Perhaps you've been resentful and angry. You've been harboring grudges. You've been guilty of bitterness against that person. And you need to ask that person's forgiveness. Will you do that? Paul says, if we examine ourselves, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. 
Lord, we come to this place humbled by your love. Even while we were yet sinners, you loved us. What right have we to withhold our love from those who sin against us? We would ask for the courage to move courageously and boldly toward those that we have wronged or those who have wronged us, to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us in any way, to ask forgiveness from those that we have wronged. Help us to look honestly into our hearts to the very to their very depths. And see, we ask you to expose any wicked way in us and give us the courage to bring those sins into the light and judge them and put them away. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful ongoing forgiveness that's always available to us when we confess our sins. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.